Hello and welcome to the Rough Draft Podcast, Season 9, Episode 6, your favorite student-run literary, cultural, and filmographical podcast here at York College of Pennsylvania. This week, we're sitting down with professors in the History, Political Science, and Geography Department here at York. And our first guest today is Geography Professor Dr. David Fife. Dr. Fife, thanks for coming and talking to us. Thanks for having me. So what specifically is your field of study and what kind of classes do you teach here at York? Yeah, so I'm a geographer, and so I, I teach geography classes here at York. So I teach a, a world regional geography and historical geography, uh, and I've also taught the GIS, which is a computer software program for mapping, things like that. But then uh, I've also developed a couple of courses that I take students abroad. So I actually have two different courses. One's an international service learning class that takes students abroad to India every other year. And then another one is called Cultures and Environment Field Series that goes to a different destination every summer. That seems like a really cool opportunity. What are some of your favorite or your students' favorite places to go? Sure. Well, I, I like to travel a lot. I mean... As a geographer, I'm always interested in learning new things about other parts of the world, meeting people, learning about other cultures and, you know, seeing how other things work in other parts of the world. And so I, I travel quite extensively on my own. And then I have also had the privilege of bringing students abroad for many, many years here at York College. I've actually taken students probably on a dozen or so different destinations since I've been here. You know, India is the one that I go back to over and over again. You know, that's that's a place that I've been to about nine times. I've taken students all of those times, and uh, it, it's a really special place. We actually go and volunteer at an orphanage in South India while we're there. But the, the students who I take often learn just as much about themselves and other cultures as, as they can ever kind of imagine learning about in a 15-week class sitting in front of me in the classroom. And that's not to say I don't think I do a good job in the classroom, but there's something about taking students abroad, even if it's for a short time, that really kind of awakens them and kind of makes them more passionate about learning and, and knowing about these places and people that we're interacting with. What first got you interested in the field of geography? Yeah, so I guess it goes back. I was uh, I served in the military, and one of the first my first duty station, I was uh, I was part of the 82nd Airborne, and we got sent to Egypt to the Sinai Peninsula to be part of what they call the Multinational Force and Observers. And it's a, it's a battalion of U.S. soldiers that's there helping up uphold the Camp David Accords. And um, while we were there, I remember getting able you know being able to travel a little bit like on weekends and stuff. Like we went to set the pyramids and. You know, we made a trip up to Israel and then we went up to Cairo to the National Museum. And I remember being in the National Museum and seeing pieces of art that I had learned about in high school. And I was just like fascinated because these were just things that were in a book, right, from uh, when I was 17 years old that I was now seeing. And I kind of I understood the importance of them from the art history class. And it really just made an impression on me. And so that kind of was the start of some of my travels. So I made up my mind at that point to just save as much money as I possibly could while I was in the army. And uh, when I got out, my best friend and I, we backpacked around Europe for about four months. And it was the same thing. You know, I, I went to places like Auschwitz and Birkenau and, and Berlin or to Normandy and just kind of seeing those places that I had knew and learned about from uh, textbooks and from classes and stuff just really spoke to me because it, it made me kind of more appreciative of those places. So when I came back to college after my travels, I had no idea what I wanted to do. And I, I actually just took a, a geography course because I was interested in learning more about places that I've been and things like that. And 
I don't know. I just three years later, I ended up having a degree in geography and degree in history. And, and then my advisor talked me into going to grad school. And so I went to Penn State and ended up after the first year in grad school, I just knew that, okay, I want to be in higher education. I love talking about geography, learning about geography, teaching people about it. And I kind of knew at that point that that was going to be my career trajectory. And I just have enjoyed it ever since, you know, the the old adage, they say, if you love what you do, you never have to work a day in your life. And so I feel like it's really been a great path for me. So you mentioned how you really love talking to people about geography. Is that how you got interested in teaching? What was that process like? Yeah. So as a grad student, you know, I was doing a lot of research, but also I was able to teach some courses and be a TA, a teaching assistant while I was at grad school and being in front of the classroom. It, it was actually really nerve wracking at first, right? Because to get up in front of, you know, at Penn State, it, it, sometimes it was in front of 200 people. You really had to know your stuff, right? And so it was one of those things where I, I really enjoyed telling people about my experiences and my perspectives about that discipline. And, you know, I, I kind of model a lot of my teaching off of faculty members who uh, inspired me, right? And and the ways that they t- taught and things like that. So I, I think it was in graduate school where I was just like, yeah, I really, I enjoy being in the classroom. I, I can tell you this though. I mean, I chose your college because I didn't want to be in a classroom with 200 students, right? Where I, I didn't know their names. I just, you know, they were faces in a huge auditorium. So when I when I did look for a job, I was looking at a, a smaller schools like your college to apply to because I wanted that face-to-face and personal reaction or I- interactions like I had as an undergraduate. Have you taught anywhere before your college? No, this was my first teaching gig. So, I mean, I, I taught courses at Penn State as a grad student, but this was my first job I landed after grad school. And I've been here since I think 2008 is when I started. What would you say is a common misconception you hear about geography or about people who study geography? Sure. Well, I I think a lot of it is that, you know, everybody thinks that I just know all my state capitals, right? And that's what we do is just memorize useless facts or, you know, where every place is in the world. And, you know, and I I think that's a part of it. You know, I, I think knowing where places are is important, but knowing your state capitals is probably not as important. But I think you know, what I think of geography is anything that has a locational aspect and asking the kind of where questions, right? And so I I think of geography as the why of where, right? And so why are things located where they are? Why? And really the field of geography, when you focus on those where questions, for instance, I'm a historical geographer. I look at a lot of the same evidence and information and data as historians, but I'm asking the where questions, right? So why does the, the geography of those places or interactions matter and how did those impact the past and, and creating the landscapes or, or or cultural things that we see today. Somebody who is a biogeographer does similar things that biology folks do. Uh, they just ask those specific more where questions. So I think the misconception about geography is that we're all like just a bunch of nerds who like maps and know our state capitals and it, it gets a lot further than that. For me, a lot of the intercultural aspects have been more important recently, uh, especially when taking students abroad and kind of learning about our own cultural values in order to understand and value and appreciate other cultures as well. How has instruction changed since you first started? Yeah, well, I mean, you know, when I was in, uh, I was an undergraduate, uh, PowerPoint was just becoming kind of a thing, right? I remember, you know, some of my faculty members used it and some didn't. And 
you know, some were, were the old chalk and talk version of like, you know, you just got up there with the chalkboard and, uh, and kind of went on. And I think it's become a lot more interactive. Um, and I think that's a good thing. And I think in my classes, what I've tried to do is to try to make things more relevant to students. And what I'm hopefully going to be seeing more of is more of the active learning where students actually participate more rather than kind of be passive, you know, recipients of knowledge in the classroom. And I'm not perfect. I mean, I still have, there's still information and, and things that you have to get out for as a background for then people to digest and to synthesize. And so it's, it's a real challenge to try to figure out where everybody in your class is in order to kind of get it to the point where they are able to kind of start synthesizing all of the information that you've been kind of giving them throughout the semester and, and things like that. That was one of the things that I really liked about the way you taught world regional geography is that like, it's not just about memorizing things. All the exams were take what you know and apply it to a similar kind of situation. That, that's exactly it, right? And I, I, get, I get frustrated sometimes because people do want to just say, what do I need to know, right? And it's just very transactional. And, and I don't think that's what we're here for, right? I think we're here to kind of push people to think more, right? And to kind of make those connections for themselves and to kind of put things together. I mean, that that to me is the critical thinking part, not just that the anybody who's in college can memorize things and then forget them 10 days later, right? It's it's putting things together to, to really make an understanding. So thanks. I, I appreciate that. What's something that you would like a future student to know about your college? I chose your college because we do have faculty who really care about teaching. I think my colleagues at your college are really great because they really do care about the teaching and learning aspect of why we're here. Other institutions that are a lot more research intensive uh, require people to kind of publish a lot more. And that takes time away from the craft of teaching and working with students and things like that. So I, I think that, you know, when you come to your college as a student, that you should be getting, you know, really good, high quality instructors that, that care and that are there, they'll they'll know who you are. I, I try to know who everybody is, at least by the third or fourth week of the semester. Uh, it's been really hard with the masks during the pandemic. I, I still, I probably still don't know people in my classes by their face anymore because I just don't see them except for the eyes up. But yeah, that's what I would say is that, you know, at your college, you're going to get faculty who really do care about giving you a quality education. What is something you would like current students to know about geography? Well, I, I what I'd like for current students kind of in all disciplines to know about geography is how relevant it is, right? I think a lot of times people put geography or even a lot of these kind of gen ed type of classes in this little box of, you know, oh, I have to check those off for my degree requirements, but they don't think about how it can actually be useful for them within their major and or, you know, for their future career. And so I think that we're living through a global pandemic, right? And we're seeing all of the connections that are made around the world uh, and how thing, how we are so connected. And, and a lot of that's geography, right? And so a couple of weeks ago when that Suez, that boat got stuck in the Suez Canal, we witnessed how that one canal impacted global trade, right? And so just to really kind of see how these things are connected at multiple scales. And I would say that most of the really big challenges in front of humanity right now are global issues. I mean, we're looking at equity, we're looking at global climate change, we're looking at global health. All of these things are, are things that no matter what your major is, they impact you and, and understanding them is actually going to, to, to help you. 
And what's one piece of advice that you would give to seniors graduating with a degree in geography? Well, at your college, they can't do that. We don't have a degree uh, in geography. So for folks getting out of undergrad with a degree in geography, uh, I'd say their world is wide open, right? There's like a lot of the other social sciences and humanities degrees, uh, those degrees are really kind of setting people up for a wide variety of future prospects. So, I mean, I, I have colleagues who I went to undergraduate with who are working in government, people working in the private sector, kind of all over the spectrum. And so for anybody graduating, whether your degree is in geography or chemistry or whatever it is, if you love what you do, then you've kind of chosen the right path forward, right? And uh, if you have chosen a major that you kind of are like, oh, now I have to find a job, it's going to be a long 30 or 40 years of work ahead of you before you get to retire. And so that that's one of the things I love about college years is that you get to explore, right? You get to kind of find what your passion is. If you would have told me in high school that I was going to be a geographer, I would have laughed. I didn't even know what a geographer was. I didn't even know you could be a geographer. And so, you know, sometimes, you know, you just have to kind of stumble upon some things too. And I, I, I think, you know, I was fortunate in terms of finding that thing that really drove me and that I was passionate about. But I think for anybody graduating, make sure that you like what you're doing. That, that would be my biggest uh, piece of advice. All right, we're going to shift gears here a little bit uh, to a, a more fun question. What is something you like to do on the weekends? Okay. Well, pre-pandemic, I spent almost all of my free time planning travel and dreaming about travel and reading travel blogs and, you know, uh, and doing all those things. And now during the pandemic, one of the things I've actually started doing is I've started actually creating stained glass. Um, I actually learned how to do stained glass. And so now a lot of times on the weekends I go and I, I create maps and create stained glass pieces and stuff like that. But it's just, it's been really fun. It's actually, you know, it's been something that has been able to let me release kind of the creative aspects of my brain. And, uh, and it also teaches me a lot of patience. There's a lot of different steps that you have to do in order. And it, it's, it's a lesson in kind of being patient as well, which uh, has been great. And I have a, a couple of cats here at home. You might have heard them fighting earlier. Um, and uh, that's, that's life during the pandemic at this point. I would imagine that once, uh, once things start opening back up, and get getting to travel again, uh, then I'll probably start getting back to some of the uh, dreaming about travel and planning future travels as well. What's something that you your students probably don't know about you? Uh, I don't know. That's interesting. I uh, my students probably don't know that I'm an avid Pokemon Go player. <laughs> did you know that, Ben? I did not know that. <laughs> yeah, I don't lead with that one for some reason. And uh, one final question. What is one rewarding experience you've had at your college? Oh, I, I've had a lot of rewarding experiences at your college. I, I think, um, you know, especially taking students abroad. Uh, I think one of the more recent ones um, that's been really, really rewarding was uh, Kathy Cooper, who is one of our Graham Innovation Scholars. Um, she designed her own travel experience where we actually went to Liberia. Liberia was her home country. And uh, I remember as a freshman, right? And so she's just graduated last year. So this is like five years ago. I remember sitting in her first year seminar and her telling me that when she graduates, she's going to go to med school and eventually she's going to go back to Liberia 
as a doctor to help the people of Liberia. And I, I ended up pushing her the first couple of years while she was at your college to try to go back to Liberia with the Graham Scholars Program and really get a sense of what Liberia is like so that it would help her make those decisions about how she's going to go back and what how Liberia has changed since she's been there. And, and she did. She actually designed a program. I went with her and two other students, uh, and it was amazing. I mean, she had connections with her family where we were hosted by the National Public Health Institute of Liberia. And the gentleman who hosted us is actually one of the people featured in Time magazine as one of the Ebola fighters, right? Back when Ebola uh, outbreak in Liberia, he this guy is one of the people who helped stop the spread of Ebola there. Uh, just an amazing man. And so that experience was just, you know, really awesome because I'm used to kind of leading students abroad and setting up the itinerary and creating the learning outcomes. And here we empowered our students to actually create their own learning outcomes, establish their own itinerary. And I was along for the ride and learning a ton um, on that as well. And so we got back and with the partnerships that she helped set up, we took a second group back of faculty and nursing faculty and, and public policy. Uh, and then she co-authored a chapter with us on that experience. And she's now applying for medical school and kind of going to pursue her her dreams. So really proud of her. And that's, you know, that's rewarding, right? Is to kind of be able to see, you know, that path that students have taken and 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 really kind of turn the table to where you're learning just as much from them as they are from you. I was kind of hoping my uh, my Halloween costume from freshman year would, would be at the top of that list, but if I'll, I'll gladly I'll gladly concede to her. Well, Ben, I tell you, you you'll have to tell all your listeners. Uh, you have that picture still? Uh, yeah, I think I do. Yeah, I, I I still have that picture. I actually uh, that became my Facebook profile picture. I think for a while there. Uh, uh, that that yes, a, a close second. How's that, Ben? That, that works. That and works. for all your listeners. You'll, you'll have to post that picture so that they can come and see your Halloween costume. How many years ago was that, Jace? That was my freshman year. So it was two years ago, three years ago. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. All right. Well, we want to thank you for coming on and talking to us today. No, I really appreciate this, guys. I think it's awesome what you're doing, kind of getting different disciplines out there and uh, and hearing from folks. I'll, uh, I'll look forward to, to hearing the podcast and good luck with you guys. All right, and our next guest today is history and government professor, Dr. John Altman. Dr. Altman, thanks for coming and talking to us today. Absolutely, it's my pleasure. So what specifically is your field of study and what kind of classes do you teach here at York? All right, so I am primarily a political scientist. And in the Department of History and Political Science, we have political scientists, we have historians, we have two geographers, and we have one intelligence analysis professor. And I teach America, I focus mainly on American politics as a political scientist and the quantitative analysis and research methods types courses. So I teach, as chair, I only teach two classes a semester, but ordinarily when I'm teaching my four classes, when I'm no longer chair, I teach the presidency and Congress and public policy courses as well. What first got you interested in politics? Wow. So... I think my, my winding up in the field of political science is less about an interest in politics and more about what was pragmatic at the time. So this is one of those bizarre stories. Again, I, I'm fascinated by the system of government 
and the procedures and the institutions of government and how they work and how we achieve something close to what we would think is a good democratic free society personally though for politics and politicians i I tend to loathe politicians but so how did i get into this well it just so happened when i was a junior going into my junior year in college it was the one subject that i wasn't screwing up completely in (laughs) i'd taken american government and did it and passed that class and i was dating a girl at the time who was a political science major so I'm like, well, I'm not screwing up in political science, and you know, Amanda's a political science major. I guess I'll major in political science. And that's kind of how it happened, right? And then I went on and finished a BA in political science and decided to stay and go to graduate school and get a master's degree. And then I decided, okay, I want to be a college professor, get a PhD. And I just, I could have wound up in any academic field, I think, and wanting to be a college professor and have a doctorate in that field and to teach at a teaching institution. But the field probably in the end never really mattered to me, but I'm pretty glad it was political science uh, because it's turned out that this is, it has been plenty of opportunities in this career and in this field and you always have something relevant and timely to address. So that's kind of where I am with the realm of political science today. You know, the the politics and the pundits on TV and all of the kind of drama of politics is just a small sliver of the entire discipline and the types of things we study and analyze in the broad academic discipline of political science. So you mentioned you, when you were in college, you knew you wanted to be a college professor. How did that come about? Oh, that's a great question. Um, You know, it's funny, I can actually visualize in my head exactly where I was in the moment that I thought to myself, you know, I think it would be pretty cool to be a college professor. And it was my, it was my freshman year of college. I went to a place in North Carolina, that's where I'm from, uh, Wake Forest University in Winston-Salem, North Carolina. And I remember leaving class and I just gotten out of my history class. I was leaving the classroom building, I think it was called Tribble Hall. And I don't know, I'd just been in a history course and I thought about the professor and how they seemed to know so much off the top of their head, it came so naturally. And possessing that knowledge and being able to talk about it comfortably, I thought was really appealing to me. And, and I had been good with ideas and kind of large, broad, grandiose, macro level thinking. And, you know, I thought that seemed pretty cool. And I remember thinking to myself, you know, be in my office, go to class, write books. Although I haven't written a book. I've written quite a number of journal articles and conference papers. But yeah, and I don't have any desire to write an entire book these days. Um, But yeah, that's how it hit me. And the funny thing is in that memory too, it was like a rainy kind of cold fall day. And in Winston-Salem, that's the uh, headquarters of R.J. Reynolds Tobacco Company. So tobacco is a big industry in North Carolina. And you have in Winston-Salem, you have Philip Morris, R.J. Reynolds, I think Brown and Williamson. In between Winston-Salem and Greensboro, you have all these tobacco companies. And just like here in York, you know, when the air is right, you can smell Spring Grove blowing in. which is pretty heinous. In in Winston-Salem, you can actually smell tobacco. 
like it's this really weird sickening sweet kind of scent and it's it's pretty pungent and when so when it was rainy and cloudy like you could smell it just in the air from the tobacco uh factory or cigarette factory um and so that always kind of sits in my mind too when i think back about at what point did i think this is what i want to do for my career by the way i apologize because they say you say my about my grandfather um if you ask him what time it is he'll tell you how to make a watch and and that's where i get it from <laughs> so york's a long way from north carolina what brought you to your college oh uh, that's a that's a question i like answering yes yeah, so i've been at york college this is my 21st year um, i started in the fall of 2000 and i was living in north carolina at the time and i was teaching i had a one-year a visiting assistant professor position at the University of North Carolina at Charlotte. And that's where I actually finished my undergraduate degree, got my master's degree. And prior to that, I had taught for five years at a place called High Point University, which I think a lot of people have heard of today, but nobody heard about it back in the mid-90s when I started there. So I had had a six-year career in, in teaching as a tenure-track political scientist before I came here. And I wanted to get out of a high point. I was going through a divorce. It was kind of a, just an awkward situation. So that's one reason I left high point. And I was fortunate enough to be able to get the one-year position in Charlotte because that's where my family lives. I was closer to my family. The Some of my old professors and my old professor who directed my senior thesis as chair of the, the political science department. And I had actually been called and asked by Western Carolina University, which is in a place called Cullowee. And that's where like lots of potheads, you know, go to Western Carolina. Um, but I had gotten a call from them and asking because one of the, the chair of the department had seen me present a paper at a conference and they needed someone to teach for a year there. There's lots of times when, when uh, colleges and universities, different academic departments might have a colleague who has died or gone on sabbatical and they need someone to fill in for a year. So there are these visiting positions. And that's what kind of led me to, to jump from high point. Cause I'm like, well, this guy's calling me and offering me an opportunity to go there for a year. You know, that might be a good change for me. And in the process of calling some of my old professors for letters of recommendation, that's when my old professor at UNC Charlotte was said, well, we've got an opening for a one-year person. We'd like you to, I'd be love to have you come here. And so in the process of trying to get a, one job, I got another one. And so that's how I wound up in Charlotte. So that was just a one-year position. So in that year, I started my job search for my next big tenure-track position. And when I was putting together applications, York College of Pennsylvania, you know, had an opening for a new position in political science. So I applied and I came for the interview in March of 2020. And I met, you know, Dr. Kulbicki and Dr. Avillo, people you may have heard of, both, both have since passed. But actually, I think Dr. Sarfo was the first person from York College after my yeah, before the interview, usually they go through the applications and then they'll call the people they're interested in. And so Dr. Sarfo was the one that called me, um, usually call to make sure the person doesn't sound insane or you know weird or whatever. And so I guess I did okay on the call with Dr. Sarfo. 
and then got a call from, I think, Dr. Kulbicki to come for an interview. And uh, eventually they decided they were going to hire me. I got the call from the dean at the time, Dean Jean. She's since left, but I can't remember her last name. Um, got hired, and so I've been here since 2000. So coming from just being in Charlotte, North Carolina, it's... Oh, and that's what the other point I wanted to make about finding a job in academia you really do have to be willing to go anywhere, apply to anything, you know, within reason uh, in terms of your field and be willing to go. And in that particular cycle, I had sent out like 59 applications because academic jobs are really competitive and they've got even, it's probably gotten a lot worse since the 20 years ago that I, you know, was looking for a job and even worse than in 94 when I was, got my first job. So you really have to be willing and able to go anywhere. I applied to schools as far north as Massachusetts and I, some out in Indiana. I had an interview down in South Texas. I applied for jobs, you know, in California, Alaska, anywhere, you know. So you, you pretty much apply all over the place. And having the PhD and six years of experience under my belt, that was pretty helpful. So I had a bunch of different interviews and a couple of offers, but York College was definitely the best, the best one of them all. And man, it the last 21 years of my life have been bliss here. I mean, this is just, yeah, I can't begin to, it's very difficult for me for, to express how happy I am being in York, Pennsylvania. And I know that may seem shocking to a lot of people, but I'm telling you, man, the grass is not greener on the other side of the fence. I think for, for people who have been a lot of other places and, and been at a lot of different other, other schools, don't, necess don't necessarily realize how good we have it here and in this area and this region as well. But I can elaborate on that later as well. Yeah, that was, that was our next question. So like, what kind of are the differences between York and the other schools you've taught at? And what is it that makes York better or different? That's a great question. I'll really enjoy answering that. So I do, I've do. i taught at three institutions. Um, so High Point University was my first job I got in 94. I was there for five years. Then the one year at UNC Charlotte, which was my alma mater for my undergraduate and master's degree. And then here at York College of Pennsylvania. And I suppose I could include the years that I was a doctoral student at the University of Tennessee and I was a, a teaching assistant and I actually taught my own sections of American government. So I really got into this business to teach. That was my primary goal in becoming an academician. Now, when you go to graduate school, you begin to realize how important research is to the academic pursuit. And that's fine. And I accepted that. And I did my research. But it really, to be quite honest, it's not my first passion or reason behind why I got into academia. I enjoyed the teaching, being in the classroom, face-to-face -face with students, giving them ideas and working with them and helping them to understand the, the complexity of the subject we're covering. So I all primarily wanted to, to be at a teaching institution. When you're in grad school though, you get kind of conditioned into this research mode, right? And so then when you start applying for jobs, there's this kind of almost hierarchy or pecking order in the what your own professors in your doctoral program would perceive as a good job versus uh, why would you want to go there. And there's this bias towards big, what we call R1, Research 1 is a Carnegie 
classification. So every university and college in the country has a Carnegie classification of the type of institution it is. So, you know, we just finished March Madness. So most of the uh, NCAA top flagship state institute, state schools, you know, Michigan, Florida, Penn State, uh, Tennessee, Kentucky, those are R1 schools. So they're research one. They do, the professors there teach one or two classes a semester and usually if they teach two, one of those two is a graduate seminar with like five doctoral students. And really their, their main folk, they aren't even judged on their teaching. Their te they, no one could give two hoots about how good a teacher they were. It's all the research that they do, how much they publish, how the quality of the journals they publish in, the way other peers have judged their work. And, and so that's like full time is really, it's what you, strive for sometimes as a grad student like yeah i'm going to go do research i'm going to go to a research place and then on the other end are you know the thousands of nearly i think maybe five thousand give or take small liberal arts type colleges where teaching is really the focus and then you have some gradations in between so my professors in grad school always expected me you know go to an r1 or even you know a second tier uh, regional university in a particular state, like a UN University of North Carolina at Charlotte, or Penn State's organized a little differently, but maybe one of the Penn State regional campuses, or you know Western Michigan, or Central Florida, or those types of schools. And so, High Point was a small private liberal arts college in North Carolina, and that was like the ideal first job for me. It was small, it was heavily teaching focused. And when you take such a job, you almost know you're committing to that type of institution. Because if your first job is nothing but teaching, you don't have time to do research, you're never gonna get enough research to prove yourself to be able to get a job at a research institution. So we, we, they talk about people working their way out of the, the heavy teaching load, small teaching school is very difficult to do. Well, I didn't have any desire to work out of that. I, that was what I wanted to be in. And so my graduate school professors would kind of go, well, I suppose for your first job, that's okay. But remember, it's going to be hard to work your way out of that. And I just thought to myself, I, you know, I'm, I'm happy to wind up. This is kind of welcome the situation that I can then say, look, this is why I'm not at a big state research institution because that's what I wanted to do and that's where I started. The one year I spent at UNC Charlotte before coming here also kind of solidified in my mind that I was doing the right thing because unlike, unlike here at your college, the middle of the afternoon, one, two o'clock, now this is way pre-COVID, right? But ordinarily even here, you know, middle afternoon students are walking up down up and down the hall. I hear them meeting with other professors. They hang out at those computers in our departmental suite over in Humanities Center. You know, you got the the Starbucks there, students are moving around, people are doing their thing. It's like the place is alive. You walk out of your office at uh, UNC Charlotte at one in the afternoon in your academic department and it's like a, it's a ghost town. Professors are there but they're all got their doors shut, right? And students, there's no students wandering about. It's like the weirdest, most sterile, isolated kind of feeling. And even when I was a grad student at Tennessee, a big school like that, again, a lot of it has to do with design 
But at the same time, like there's this weird impersonal disconnect between kind of the department and the faculty and the students. And I feel more connection here. Uh, it feels more like a community, you know, like a community, you know, of young people and older people, students and professors, all with this kind of same goal. And it's got kind of some life to it. So that's one thing about York College. Oh, and class sizes. I mean, I taught a class of 200 students in when I was a doctoral student. And even in that one-year position before coming here, I had a section every semester for two semesters of about 85 students in kind of a big theater room. You know, so it's that classic class size thing uh, that you have. And your college was just, it was special, man, when I arrived here. I mean, I don't know. It, it had an ethos and a feel to it that was very collegial, inviting, and and relaxed, and, you know, just a positive vibe. And so I don't want to get too, I don't want to bore you too much on this, this, uh, this line of thinking, but I do want to say one thing that maybe you hear of this, and this is going to make me sound like the old curmudgeon now I realize it, right? This is not a bad thing. It's change, but the the way it was when I first got here is was unique. It's fairly unique, um, and it's because of the size of the college at the time. But offices for faculty were very mixed up and and kind of what how's the word randomly assigned. And it was at a time when your college was smaller and had been up to that point, and you had departments. You know, the biology department, department of history and political science, education. But the way that the de the offices were doled out at the school was really weird and haphazard, which in the end was a, such a good thing for faculty morale and our ability to get to know our colleagues in other departments. Like now you guys are experiencing, or your experience is the Department of History and Political Science, all the faculty are, are in this place teaching, and then all the faculty in that department are over there, and all in engineering have their engineering, and everybody in psychology is in one place with psychology. Well, there was a time where I was on a hall in life sciences before it was renovated, and I was in an office suite with a literature professor, Dr. Amberg, a criminal justice professor, Dr. Hanbury, and a anthropology professor, Dr. Jack Levisky, who is since passed. So you had an anthropologist, a criminal justice person, a literature person, a political scientist, all in an office suite that had four offices. And when you walked out that door, you go one office to the right, and that was an education professor. You go an office to the left, and there was a psychology professor. And then you move down the hall, and it was history professor, nursing professor. I mean, we were all kind of mixed around. And when an institution grows, it does have to split into our different area camps for our departments, you know, creating spaces or labs and the materials that each different discipline needs. But there was something lost, something was lost when we did that. So when I now sit in an academic senate meeting, you know, there'll be a, a, a young person who looks to me like a student I learn is a engineering professor that they hired three years ago. I like I don't even know who this person I first time they've ever appeared on my radar. And I really think that's kind of that's unfortunate. I mean, it's difficult. So I think we had something when 
when man, so my colleagues that I've met in the first and worked with in the first 10 years at York College, some of them I hardly ever see, but when we have academic senate meetings in person, someone who I was close to on that hallway, I'll see, it's like, oh, it's so good to see you. It's been so long, you know, so. But, but that's something still that the point being is, uh, even at that, the faculty, I believe at your college are quite collegial. We all get along. We want to know each other. We like each other. It's just a very positive environment, I'd say. Yeah, I would agree as a student. There's definitely a positive relationship between students and professors in that way. What is a common misconception that you hear about political science or students in the field of political science? Ah, that's a good, that's, that's, that's a really good question. It, it's a classic. When I'm sitting, when I'm sitting in the barber chair, or when I go to the chiropractor, or I'm in, waiting in line somewhere, you know, and people find out that I'm a political science professor at York College, they'll, one thing they'll say is, oh, and if it's election time, They'll say, oh, you must have so much to talk about these days. And, and I want, I mean, I'm becoming more cynical every year. And I just want to say, yeah, yeah, that's pretty much it. Every four years is about the only time there's anything to talk about, you know, with students. Like, there's always something to talk about. Or, so one, they'll think that all of the scope of political science is pundits on TV talking on the news. And just presidential elections or crises. The other one that people, thinks that people will say that always troubled me were, I'm a political scientist. Oh, you teach political science. You're just trying to make a bunch of politicians. I hate politicians. I probably would argue that maybe 2% of all political science majors want to become elected political officials or want to be politicians. They want to work for politicians which I think is a laudable thing to do. You're, you're exploring the issues and trying to provide the best guidance possible for this person who has to make the final decisions, but you have a lot of influence there and you don't have to engage in all of the cheesy behavior. <laughs> so there's more to political science than just what's on the news. And political science is not a training ground for politics, as it were, for the most part. I mean, it can be if you want it to be, but that's not what's like in the mind. So I'm not training up politicians to go and run for elections and talk on MSNBC. That to me is kind of the biggest kind of uh, misunderstanding about what the idea of majoring in political science is all about. So what are some of the ways that instruction has changed since you first started, aside from the obvious changes this year? Yeah, this is like the curve on that change is skyrocketing at the moment, you know. But from in the last 20 years, when I was interviewing, when I was in the cycle of interviewing at schools that ultimately got me the job at York College, I interviewed at a school in South Texas called uh, Texas A&M, was it Texas A&M at Corpus Christi? No, it was called T Texas A&M University Corpus Christi. Maybe that's what it was. Yeah. But anyway, it was because there's Texas A&M, the main Texas A&M campus. Yeah. But they remember they called themselves TAMU, Texas A&M University, but it was in Corpus Christi, Texas, you know, there on the Gulf. Anyway, 
I go to that place to interview. And as we're walking through the classroom building, the department chair is kind of pointing out, here's our classrooms, this is what they look like. And, you know, and I saw in this one classroom, they had the screen up and there was a PowerPoint presentation on the wall. And he said, you know, you can't, you can, you can't teach without doing PowerPoint these days. We expect everybody to have a PowerPoint. You know, students expect it. And I thought to myself, well, okay, that, I mean, that's cool. I've, up to that point, I mean, I was fairly, I wouldn't even call it old, it wasn't old school at that time to be in a classroom and write on the board. That's what I started doing was chalk and writing on the bo- chalkboard. Dry erase boards at first I didn't like. Uh, I like them better now, but but even then that they're obsolete. But I think, so there was this expectation, there was the beginnings of more technology in the classroom, call it what you will. I mean, really all PowerPoint is, is a glorified, writing things on the board <laughs> and um, or a glorified you know slide projector so that would be that would be one thing that's been a challenge it does create efficiencies in the ability of sharing slides with students so in terms of their note taking they have the slides but at the same time I mean just reading I, I try to use that technology solely for the purpose of illustrating graphs and charts and just pictures or images of things that kind of will help students lock information in their mind. But as far as big paragraphs and giant quotes and just reading off of slides, I, I hate that. So that that was one thing that, that was starting. And I just think over the past 20 years, the whole idea of doing more and more stuff online, remote and synchronous, but also asynchronous, you know, to what extent should you use discussion boards and have students then use the technology of doing a podcast or some other, you know, YouTube video? Yeah, I'm probably a kind of what I would call a neo-Luddite. You know, the Luddites were like anti-technology back in the early 19th century. And I'm kind of, man, I can't believe this is happening to me, but I really am the crotchety old man, uh, curmudgeon, neo-Luddite, Wow, I just never thought I would become that person because, I mean, you got to understand, I come from technology like back in the 80s. Like, I can write my own code in Edlin and use, you know, the C colon DOS prompt to do stuff in my computer. And and I used to think I was just hardcore. And, and now things have just, it's all taken off and flown past me, you know. Um, I don't do Facebook or Twitter or Instagram. I don't do any, I have no personal social media anything, and I don't plan to. My phone, the only reason I carry a phone is because of my wife. If, if I wasn't married and didn't have children, I wouldn't carry a phone. I would just leave my phone. I mean, I might leave it in my car. I might leave it on my desk at work. You know, maybe I'd leave it on my nightstand. But I wouldn't be carrying it around with me 24. I wouldn't have access to it 24 uh, seven. But anyway. Yeah, it's probably a good thing you're not on social media. <laughs> Being a political science. Oh yeah, that, <laughs> well I've actually had friends say, yeah, you shouldn't, don't do, you shouldn't do social media. I don't do drama anyway, so I don't think I would get caught up in that. That's what I just, for me, walking away is really easy. This life's too short to like be arguing and 
trolling and venting and blowing up on people, you know, online. That whole world, I don't get it, man. But anyway. What is one thing you would like a future student to know about your college? Oh, that's a great question. I think York College, it holds, it, it, the secret value of York College is that York College doesn't realize how good it really is. And I would say we, we don't, we ought not, and we would, we're trying to not sell ourselves short, that we have, I think we have the luxury or the right or the ability to claim what we do here at York College is top of the line higher education. It's a small, smaller, remote kind of private college here in Pennsylvania that from all glances, people don't know much, don't know as much about it right? But there's a well-kept secret here in that learning takes place here. We're not going through the motions. We're not claiming to do things that we don't. Our proof is in the pudding. And I really think that what we provide here is one of the most cost-effective. Like, we're not an expensive place. We're not overly fancy. I mean, we got what we need. Some nice buildings, the Performing Arts Center, you know, Grumbacher with the rock wall, new dorms popping up are nice. And we have to have all that stuff. But we, we don't do any of that until we know that our academic programs that we offer, our degrees, our faculty, the ability of us to teach our students and the students' abilities to learn from us, that comes first and we've really built a solid foundation of learn, teaching and learning here at the college. All right, what's something that you would like current students to know about the field of political science? Oh my God, well, I mean, just watch the news. I mean, that's. I think that's one reason why I like being in political science is because it's not going away. The need for people to govern isn't going away. The needs of society that require some form of government, whether it's regulation or assistance or research, future society can, is not going to exist without some form of government. And the governments don't go away. Companies close, different forms of manufacturing or different areas of business come and go. So think of the mom and pop stores that have been destroyed by Amazon, right? So you have a whole series of, of a sales retail industry that just dies. Governments don't go anywhere. <laughs> it's very difficult to kill a government. And there are jo the jobs available to people that want to work in government. When you think of one national government with about 3 million civilian employees, you have 50 state governments uh, with about another oh, 20 million employees. And then between county governments and municipal governments, we're talking about another 90,000 90, government units, or I should say, yeah, about another 90,000 government units, not employees. I'm talking about governments. And I believe that public service is like the most noble kind of goal or pursuit um, that a student can take. And that's one, that's, a, that's another thing that happened in my career. So when I was an undergraduate political science major, I'd thought about being a college professor. When I was finishing my undergraduate, I decided to get a master's degree because at that point I wasn't sure really how to go about doing any of that. And it just so happened there was a master's in public administration uh, at the end of my at UNC Charlotte. 
And so my idea was, yeah, I mean, I feel I feel better about myself. I feel like I have more to contribute to society by working towards the good of the, the society as a whole. Um, and so when I got my master's degree, I was thinking about working as a town manager or working in some government bureaucracy. And, and then while getting that master's is when I started teaching the quantitative analysis labs. And then I realized, oh, I really do want to teach. And so that's why I went and got a PhD. But I would tell students today with regard to political science, there's all kinds of opportunities out there. It never ends. It just kind of changes what policy issues are more important than others. But you're never going to... You're never going to lose on education policy or old age policy or uh, environmental policy or economic development policy. Those are things that are always going to need bright, thoughtful people who can figure out solutions and ways of regulating without maybe being too intrusive and providing for the needs of the needy without taking too much out of those that have and just figuring out that balance. What is a piece of advice you would give seniors graduating in political science? Well, one, be patient. And really, this is for probably any student, but be patient and apply for anything. Be willing in your life to go anywhere. You're going to limit yourself in the modern day if you say, well, I, I, I want to live in the D.C. area. I mean, you have a goal of doing that. Sure, you apply and try hard to wind up in the place you want to be. But don't, don't be afraid to apply for some job in somewhere in northern Minnesota or in uh, West Texas or California, Oregon. I mean, anywhere. It just shouldn't. Place shouldn't matter. Don't be a location snob. You can find the good in any place. I have friends that are kind of big location snobs. One of my best friends lives in Austin, Texas. I mean, that's a part of his identity. I'm from Austin, you know. It's like people from Philly, okay? You're always like, I'm from Philly. And so, but York... The, he comes to visit me, and then we go to Baltimore, we go to Philly, we go to New York City, we go to go to Gettysburg, we do all kinds of... Like, he comes here to go do all these things that he... Austin, what's Austin? It's hot, you know, muggy as hell there in Texas, and where do you go to from there? San Antonio. Okay, great, another dry, hot Texas town. Where do you go? Dallas. Okay, Dallas. Well, why do I want to go to Dallas? I was going to say Houston, you could see Dr. Phil, but Dr. Phil's in, in uh, Los Angeles. Um, now, I will admit this, however. I was saved by York College. When I was looking for the job that time around, I had nine interviews, nine on-campus interviews. I had only gone to seven of them when I got the offer from York College, and I accepted the job. So the remaining two, I was able to cancel. Well, one of them was at the University of Michigan, Flint. And I told the guy, look, I'm not going to come for the interview. I don't want to waste your time. And he was very upset. Well, we already bought the plane ticket, you know. We want you to come here. We want to show you what we have. And I'm like, I already took another job. It would be a total waste of your time. I really don't want to waste your time. But he was, he was pretty upset. And I have watched in the job listings in political science that the American Political Science Association publishes. Probably at least every year or every few years, they always have a job opening for an assistant professor of political science at the University of Michigan, Flint, because nobody wants to go to Flint, Michigan. And this is even before the whole water thing. This goes back to the major auto manufacturers fleeing Flint. You know, it's just, it's not a place. So I wouldn't want to live in Flint. 
But other than that, I'd have gone anywhere. I still would have gone to Flint. If that was the only college school that offered me a job, I would go there. So my advice to graduating seniors is don't limit yourself. Be willing to just go off on an adventure into the unknown and take a risk. Because if you do end up not liking the place, well, you can always find another place. Try again. Work your way out, as it were. All right, we'll shift gears for a second here. What's something that you like to do in your free time or on weekends? Oh, man. So seems like up until the spring happening, I like to chill. I like watching television. But actually, all through the winter, this winter, I was running. I like running. I was training for a 100-mile ultramarathon. But when the snow started hitting in February, it really started getting in the way of my training and... I don't know, I just got kind of depressed and I kind of got fed up and I kind of got out of the cycle for a couple weeks because of all the snow. I run on the rail trail and when the rail trail is covered in snow like it was and it just stays cold, I mean, you can barely run on it when it's snowing, but I like doing that because it's kind of fun when it's first snowing, but then everybody's footprints freeze up in it and it just becomes this like worse than cobblestone kind of path to run on. And this time, it I swear, it was probably unrunnable for at least two or three weeks, it felt like. So I kind of bailed on the training for this 100-miler, which would have been in, in a couple weeks. It's uh, the CNO Canal 100, which is supposedly really good for someone doing their first Ultra 100 um, because it's pretty flat on the CNO Canal Trail. So, but I did, and I trained for that very Ultra Marathon a year ago but it got canceled due to COVID. But I've run a whole bunch of marathons. I like running. I like getting out on the last couple summers. I've done a, do about 150 miles a shot on the Appalachian Trail. So I guess you consider that what's called a section hiker. So I've done a total of about 300 miles on the AT and I'll do that again this summer. But again, that, that always came from the fact that I had been training up. So Two years ago, I ran the York Marathon, and so I figured a month later, I was like, you know, maybe I'll go see what I can do on the AT. And I figured out how to hike the AT and get all the equipment and stuff. And, and so I'd run a marathon, I hiked the AT. Then last year, I had trained for an ultra, got canceled due to COVID. Fortunately, the AT, uh, the AT opened up in mid-June, so I was able to get out there and hike on the Appalachian Trail again because I was trained up. And I've was trained up really nice until mid-February, so I need to start getting back in shape. So I guess a lot of like hiking, running is my main passion. And in addition to that, I know a lot of people know that I have a Harley and I love riding my Harley, but that was, I probably logged way more miles before I got married and had children than I have since being married and having children. And that's all good, but it, it's amazing how f much time you have when you're single and free. I mean, I probably put 25,000 miles a year just on my motorcycle when I was in my mid-30s to 40s. And now I'm lucky if I get it out a few times a year. But now that my daughters are getting older and don't, you know, don't need as much attention, that well, one's off to college, the other one's you know, going to be 14, I think I have more time and I'm going to commit more time to riding my bike. I have to do some work on it right now. It's sitting on the stand in my garage. And again, I was going to work on it all winter, but it was just too cold. And now the nicer weather. Last night, I remember thinking to myself, you know what? Now it's time to get that thing in the middle of the garage and start 
cracking it open, get that fixed so I can get out and ride. Well, someone who doesn't like running, I can't imagine doing an ultra marathon. So. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I don't know why I do it. I'm not fast. I'm not breaking any records. I'm, you know, 225 pounds, six foot two, just lugging my carcass across the, you know, the trail um, as best I can. I think it's just, I just like abusing myself in that respect, proving that I can actually do that. Like I, that I can go out and I can run 25 miles on Saturday and then run another 27 on Sunday and just be able to do it, just to do it. You know, it takes a lot of time. It really sucks sometimes. <laughs> but man, it's like beating your head against the wall. It just feels so good when you stop. And David Goggins, I don't know if you know who he is, but uh, he always says, do something every day that sucks. And I try to, I try to do that. What is something your students probably don't know about you? I don't know, man. I'm pretty darn transparent. Um, I have no secrets these days. I know students know I'm kind of whacked out. And I know that students know that, you know, I struggled myself in undergrad and was not that motivated. I was one of those kids that didn't go to class and was like a slacker for the first, oh, two and a half years. Mid-junior year, I turned it around and... And so everything turned out okay. I have a good brain, you know, I was educated well along the way. But yeah, in my younger days, in my early 20s, you know, I was just kind of out of control and partied too much when I went to college. That's all. That's the reason I chose to go to Wake Forest University. I had applied to a bunch of schools, University of North Carolina, a place called Hampton Sydney College, uh, Furman University in South Carolina, Wake Forest, and I had been accepted to UNC Chapel Hill. So my mom's, we sent the deposit for the dorm. So this would be in the fall of 1983. <laughs> oh, no, fall of 1982. So I was going to Chapel Hill. It's going to be a Tar Heel at UNC Chapel Hill. Well, in the spring, 83, right before graduation, my one of my best friends in high school, who was a year ahead of me, who had gone to Wake Forest, I went to go visit him, and while I was there visiting my friend Bobby Vaughn, I smoked out of like nine different bongs across the whole weekend, and I was like, whoa, this is where I want to go to college, and so that's how I wound up at Wake Forest. So, man, my, either, either there is no God and I'm really lucky, or God has just been smiling down on me for whatever reason, but it seems like my life choices have been for like the most haphazard reasons. You know, I wanted, I chose to go to Wake Forest because I smoked out of nine bongs. And that proved itself when I, by the time I was a junior, I did, I took a semester off because I was totally screwing up and realized I couldn't go back to Wake Forest to my fraternity and all of that stuff. Um, and so I transferred to UNC Charlotte and got clean, you know, and tried to get my act together. But, you know, between choosing college for that reason and then choosing a major because my girlfriend was majoring in it and I didn't have anything less, didn't have anything less than a C. I couldn't be a, a econ major. I failed econ. I couldn't be an accounting major. I failed accounting. So I couldn't be a business major. That's why I took those two classes in the first place my sophomore year. And again, I failed them not because I'm an idiot. I failed them because I just didn't go to class. I spent most of my time sitting in my room doing bong hits. I mean, that's just what I did. You know, it's just complete waste. Yeah, so it's funny how those things kind of pan out. 
and, and going to get a master's degree after college. Now, people don't necessarily quite understand what I'm about to say, but it's meant to be something that is still challenging, not the easy way. I never picked the easy way out. I just picked whatever the thing right in front of me was, you know? But I, I like to say that graduate school is the snooze button on the alarm clock of life. Meaning, there's nothing easy about graduate school, okay? But as I approached the end of my undergraduate career and I was gonna getting ready to graduate with a BA in political science, it was kind of like, ugh, you know, God, should I find a job? Should I join the military? <laughs> like, what am I gonna do? And lo and behold, boop, I can hit the snooze button and I can stay in the poor, struggling student lifestyle that was is safe and not have to venture out into the real world and work and have pressure and stress. And so I chose to go to grad school. Now, graduate school is harder mentally, like intellectually and mentally more difficult than taking any first job. You have to commit to it. But you do get an excuse for wearing cutoffs and a t-shirt every day for the at least the next two years because you're a grad student. You don't have to have a tie. Now, you'll see all your friends getting car payments and apartments, their new jobs, you know, they got money coming in and you feel like a big loser. But I tell you what, turn it around 30 years later <laughs> and I'm like, I'm in bliss, man. One, I am sitting in a t-shirt and jeans, right? And I didn't have any classes to teach today and summer is coming when I will be free, you know, for three months in a row and my friends, back in the day who got those jobs are putting that groat around their throat every morning, the tie, the hangman's noose that you wear. And sure, they may be driving their Lexus to this job that they just hate, you know, um, or it's just they've been doing it for so long. So yeah, I just, I am, I'm really fi feel, find myself, I feel very fortunate and I'm super stoked that my life turned out the way it did. And I wish for everybody that they are charmed or lucky enough to kind of find that path and that works. Um, but yeah, but it was a rocky road. I mean, that's, I mean, I, I talk about this honestly in class, but you know, I'm in, I do 12 step recovery, you know, AA, NA, and I've been clean for decades. But, you know, I had a problem with substance abuse as a teenager and early college student. And I, again, it's not one of those things that I don't share, you know, what do, what do students not know about me? Pretty much not, nothing. <laughs> I'm willing to tell students anything because I know what it's like to struggle and not go to class and blow off your work because either you're partying too hard or just depressed. I mean, depression is a really, really, difficult thing to deal with. And I can remember just curled up in a ball on my bed in my dorm room, just not wanting to like get out from under the covers or walk out the door. Um, and I know that's how lots of students feel. So I tend to, I'm really try to be compassionate and not just assume, oh, that's just some flaky knucklehead kid who doesn't give a shit. I think any student who appears to a professor to not care, there's something else going on there. Rarely, who would choose just to not care about college in their future, right? No one. They all come because they want to do something. So if it's not panning out the way a professor thinks it ought to, is it because that kid really wants to? Like, no one 
strives to be a loser, <laughs> you know? So what's getting in the way of that? That's what I like about York College is that we sincerely and genuinely want to help students get through or figure out what the block is and to work through that block, whether it's depression or past abuse or substance abuse, what have you. Yeah, so that, that for me has gone pretty much hand in hand with teaching. And I've had over the years students come to me that have asked for help and I help guide them in that direction. Or some students, I believe, just, just knowing that the professor gets it and I can say, look, I've been there, you know, um, is helpful. All right, and our last question for you today, what would you say has been one of the most rewarding experiences you've had throughout your teaching career? Oh boy. I mean, there's a number of things. I think when I'm recognized by students, the York College Student Senate has their Outstanding Academic Advisor Award and their, there's another one. It's not, it's not the teaching award, but it's, it's a, oh, it's the Student Senate, I think, like recogni Academic Recognition, Faculty Recognition Award. And I've won each of those twice. I have like four plaques on my wall. And, you know, it's not like I strive for accolades, but it feels pretty good when you get recognition from students that, you know, they like the way you do what you do and you're meeting, meeting their needs. Yeah, and I think some of the other great satisfaction is watching a student graduate after four years that's been, say, one of my either advisees or in my department of major, a kid that's kind of the awkward kid that maybe struck, works their butt off and gets C's and B's. And, you know, they can't quite get into that four range, that range of A's. And, and maybe they have awkward, weird moments and they're just kind of strange struggling through life and yet they get to the end and they're graduating from York College of Pennsylvania and I'm like so happy for them. So I'd, I'd say seeing the, the students that have really been challenged and worked really hard to graduate and knowing that students appreciate how the faculty have helped them and played some kind of role in that. All right, we wanna thank you for coming on and talking to us today. Yep, that was my pleasure. We want to thank all of our guests for coming on and talking to us today. I learned a lot, and I hope you guys did too. Tune in next week where we sit down and talk with professors and students in the Education and Psychology Department. <laughs>